Also called Edward Syndrome. Doctors tell us that you won't likely make it to birth. Your mom and I are praying against that. We're praying for healing. We're praying for nothing less than a miracle. You're our first child, and the day of your birth couldn't come sooner. Dear Elliot, you were born today weighing in at six pounds. You are already a miracle to us. Your mom is doing well, and it looks like we'll be hanging out here at the hospital a little longer. Dear Elliot, today you turned 11 days old. We are so proud of you. Today we celebrated your 11th birthday. In fact, we do that every day at 4.59, the time you were born. Dear Elliot, We've been home for a week now, so that's why you don't see your nurses anymore. It's great to have you home. Today I think we'll pack up everything and take our first venture out for coffee. Dear Elliot, I don't know if you've noticed, but you're connected to some tubes. The doctors say we have to keep these in so you can get oxygen to breathe. You are also fed through a feeding tube. We feed you every three hours and it takes an hour and a half to do it. We've loved learning how to best take care of you. We love it. Lots of people email, call, and send cards on your behalf. You're well loved. It's 11 at night right now and my feeding shift has just begun. Mom is asleep and the best part of my day has begun. My shift ends around 4.45 a.m. when your mom takes over. She cherishes her mornings with her boy. Today you turn one month old. I didn't know if I'd ever get to say that. To top off the day, 20 friends showed up at the door for a true surprise birthday party for you. They sang, brought balloons, and a birthday cake. It was beautiful chaos. At 2 a.m. this morning, your feeding tube came out. We had been warned this may happen eventually. We quickly realized we did not have a stethoscope, which was necessary to replace the tube. Since our neighbor was a nurse, I went ahead and knocked on their door at 2.30 a.m. They found their stethoscope, and your mom went to it. After much wrestling, praying, and your tears, the tube was down, and you were able to feed. Just so you know, your mom is my hero. Dear Elliot, you now weigh 7 pounds 3 ounces. You're growing and your food has been bumped up because of your good appetite. You continue to find new ways to steal our hearts. Dear Elliot, today marks two months of your life. Your mom and I are so thankful we know you. We know your face, your noises. We know that bath time and massage are your favorite daily activity. You finally learned how to suck your thumb by yourself. Because of trisomy 18, you were born with clenched fists, and being able to do this is actually quite difficult. Way to go, son. Dear Elliot, we celebrate your birthday every day with a picture. Lately, we've tried to get a bit more creative. Dear Elliot, I realize you can get frustrated with your tubes and your frequent congestion. Please know that your mom and I are doing everything we can to make you comfortable. Dear Elliot, well, you tipped the scales today at 8 pounds, 14 ounces. Quite an accomplishment. You also have managed to grow a pretty decent mullet. Dear Elliot, we all got to go to a reunion at the hospital. I've never seen your mom more happy. The joy she felt getting to show off her son can't be described with words. In fact, she compared it to the way a mother would feel when her son becomes president or wins a Heisman or develops a cure for cancer. The logic of medicine says you shouldn't be alive, but you are. You are such a fighter. 
Dear Elliot, you have now passed the three-month mark. You also got your first cordless pictures taken today. No feeding tube, oxygen, or stickers. This was no small accomplishment, but we got it done. Have I told you lately that we are so proud of you? Dear Elliot, today you went to be with Jesus. An underdeveloped lung, a heart with a hole in it, and DNA that placed faulty information into each and every cell of your body could not stop God from revealing himself through a child who never uttered a word. Not a pulpit, not a slick presentation, not a best-selling book, but a six-pound boy with trisomy 18. God found great pleasure to take a lowly thing in the eyes of the world and show truth. At your funeral, we released 99 balloons, each balloon representing a day of your life. How beautiful it was to watch. How quickly they were gone. And so today, we celebrate. Elliot, you are well. And although we miss you more than we can express, we're only separated from you by our time left on earth. See you soon, son. Mom and Dad. Maybe I should be preaching on Job, or Jonah today. Sometimes these clips don't stay. And as Pastor Dave shared earlier, we do want to encourage you to be praying for our vacation Bible school this week. And if you are not working in the mornings or you're not out of town, please preferably consider joining us here this week and fill that gap of 14 workers. As you listen to children's baptism testimonies, you'll hear many of them say they found Christ at Vacation Bible School. So we would like to encourage you to be part of that wonderful experience. Anybody here needing a tissue? A very moving story, wasn't it? It was a tremendous story of faith, strength, and courage. It's marvelous about how this couple, even as they mourned the inevitable, inevitable death of their son, this couple maintained the courage to fight for his life. They continued to love him without reservation. Every day was a new day, a new day of the gift of God that they were able to hold their child. And rather than just grieving it away, they celebrated. Every day was a new birthday for Elliot. But you know, death inevitably 
will touch us all. Every family represented here has or will have will be visited by the experience of death. We are no stranger to mourning at all. It comes to us. And although I have myself had to mourn the loss of family and loved ones, I can recall two experiences that were especially painful. In August of 1973, my brother's first and only child, only child at that time, Kellyanne, three years old, and she was with her mother. How many of you can remember, and this was back in the days before the laws about child restraint, how many of you can remember sitting on your father's lap helping him drive the car? Yeah? Now, it's, it's us older generation that can remember that because the laws have changed. Or can you remember standing on the front seat beside mom or dad while they're driving? Quite common in those days. Well, that's what Kellyanne was doing. She was standing on the front seat beside her mom. And for some reason, the car drifted off to the edge of the road and tire, front tire caught in the gravel beside the road and her mom lost control. And the car skidded and ended up against a tree. And Kellyanne ended up part of the windshield. And I can remember the telephone call that our family received that evening. The story of what had happened and Kellyanne was in the intensive care unit in a hospital in Lexington. Now my mom deals with things like that by being busy. So immediately she set out about cleaning the house. I mean she just, nothing was left unturned. I mean she cleaned the house just so that she be, could be busy. And at some point in the hours of the night, we got the second call that Kellyanne was gone, that she did not make it. And my mom just lost it and broke down. I can remember the terrible experience of the funeral. This beautiful little three-year-old child with the curly blonde hair. We were putting her in the ground and she was gone. And then again in August of 1984, in the middle of the night, we, well, actually we were in Diamond, near Titusville. I was pastoring a church at Diamond. We got a call late at night. There was actually a nurse at a hospital in Louisa, Kentucky, that my father had suffered a very serious heart attack. It was not expected to pull through it. And immediately one of my first thoughts came to, to his spiritual condition. To my knowledge, my dad had never prayed that prayer and accepted Christ as his Savior. Well, he knew what, knew the story. He knew what he needed to do. He grew up in a very strong faith family. <clears throat> and remember, I think it was in 69 that my, his, his father died. And in those days, and in eastern Kentucky, the tradition was that the funeral wake was held in the home. And my grandfather, was, the casket was in the living room of the house. And that evening, as the family was all gathered there in the next room, my grandmother said, well, at a time like this, and I can remember these words just so clearly, said at a time like this, there's really only, only one thing that can be said. And she began to sing, Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When Jesus took my sins away. 
here her husband of, I forget how many years, it was a long time, was laying in a casket in the next room. And her testimony, her expression of happy day that Jesus took my sins away. Because she knew where her husband, my grandfather, was. And she knew that before long she would be with him. And I can remember the comfort that we took as a family. Quite a contrast between um, two deaths, though. My grandfather, we knew where he was, but my dad, I did not know for sure. And the only hope I had to cling to was that in some part of the process, when he was in that intensive care unit, his memory recalled what he needed to do and that he would have made his peace with God. And so at his funeral, did not have that same sense of comfort of knowing where he was. But we sang that song day by day as I face my trials here. And in it, my hope and encouragement, my strength is from knowing the Savior. Now today, there are probably many in here who are mourning. Maybe you've lost a spouse or a child, or other family member. Maybe a close friend has died. Others may be mourning the loss of a job, of a home, maybe a marriage, or some other significant part of your life. Many others are here today are still mourning the loss of our beloved Pastor Rick as our leader. You know, mourning is really an emotional response through which we are able to express our sorrow, our grief, and even our regrets. And we most commonly think of mourning as expressing the grief that we feel at the death of someone that we love, someone who is so near to us, so much a part of our lives. We feel it very, very deeply. And for some, the pain is nearly unbearable. Some are unable to, fu- to function because they are incapacitated by the weight of their loss. And I can remember that's how my mother was so, for so long after the death of Kellyanne. She just could not function because that grief was so strong. But our passage today says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Part of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, where Jesus was speaking to some very serious issues of our lives. There's a similar passage in the 61st chapter of Isaiah, where he records, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Now, mourning, grief, and the sorrow, they, they are all part of life. And we will have to deal with these for, you know, for the rest of our life because these things do come to us in one way or another. 
Death is an inevitable visitor to every home. And the loss of things that we hold dear can occur without warning. This is realized by those who have experienced, lived through tornadoes, floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, fire. Suddenly, everything you've held near and dear is just gone. Now, many people do manage to cope with these occurrences of life quite well. Particularly those who rely not on their own strength, but the strength that we gain from the presence of God living in our lives through the Holy Spirit. We know Him. We are in relationship with Him. And because of that relationship, our heart, our life, is a residence of the Holy Spirit. And when these times come upon us, we do not bear them alone. He takes that burden for us. And also is the realization that everything that we hold dearly and, and hold on to, we realize that it is not really ours, but is actually a gift from God. Now those who struggle most intently with loss are those who would grasp most tightly. They would grasp onto their loved ones and to their possessions. They hold them so tightly Never able to really let them go. And as long as they grasp them, never able to release them, the mourning continues, the grief process continues, and continues to eat away at the heart. Now this young couple in the video, they loved and they cherished Elliot. They appreciated every day they had with him as a gift. They, couldn't, they could have grieved, and they could have just simply waited for the end to come because, they, well, he's, I mean, he just doesn't have developed lungs and he's got other problems. He's not going to make it, so we might as well just kind of fold up and wait for the end to come. But they didn't do that. They chose to go a different route. Every day they treated as a birthday, recognizing what a wonderful gift they had in Elliot. It was another day of life, and they chose to focus on the gift that they had rather than to focus on the loss to come. Was it easy? I would certainly think not. I mean, I don't know. I cannot tell you how I would have borne up under similar circumstances. None of us would be able to really know for sure until we've experienced that. And we have been blessed with four wonderful children And I'm so thankful that they are alive and well and God blesses them. But some of you have lost a child. You know that pain that it feels, that you feel, you know know the hurt that is involved. And you can sympathize with this couple. You know what they have gone through. But what was it that carried you through that? How did you survive it? How do you continue to survive, especially on the birthdays, the Christmases, and other things that would remind you of your loss? And I can really only think of one answer to that question, one thing that would give us that kind of hope. 
And that is a trust in the sustaining power of God dwelling in our lives. You know, I can see the difference in funerals that I conduct. And other pastors here would be able to say the same thing. Sometimes we get calls from funeral directors to say, we've got a family that has no church connection at all. Can you come and do the funeral? And of course we do. But what do you say? Such a difference between, say, if one of our people here in our body of faith here die and the family is Christian, and doing that funeral, we could approach it more like a celebration and giving thanks for the life that we've had and the life is now with God who gave it and we have such hope going forward. But with these families, that there is no hope. I mean, they have nothing to cling to. They're, they're like they're adrift at sea. There's no rudder. There's no oar. There's nothing that can sustain them. There's only the abyss. What can we say to them other than to proclaim the hope and the promise that God gives to us through Christ? That we have that responsibility to make that choice for ourselves and to be sure that we are in Him. One of the most difficult things I have to do is these funerals where there is no connection with Christ. But there is a factor in the ability that is the ability for us to be able to release that pain and that grief that we feel at the time at the time of loss. There's some that just simply cannot recover because they have grasped it so tightly they never really let it go. My own mother suffered long-term grief over the death of Kelly because she never really let it go. Even to this day, she's in her 80s. I can still see signs that she still has that grief. But you know, letting go is an important part of that grief process. It's not that we forget about the person. Or we just kind of write them out of their lives. We don't do that. But we get to a point, we work it through, and we've got to release them back to God who gave them. And let them go and let go of that grief. grief. We can never get on with our lives. We can never move forward until we have been able to find that release in letting go. Now, this will be true for any kind of grief or mourning that we may be experiencing, whether it's death or whether it's a loss. Now, there are words to a prayer that I say in a committal service at the grave that expresses the approach that we as believers should have when we are facing this situation. The prayer goes, as first you gave him to us, so now we give him back to you. Receive him into the arms of your mercy and receive us also and raise us to a new life. Before he was ours, he is yours. For all that he has given to make us what we are, for that of him that lives and grows in each of us, we give you thanks. And now as we offer him back into your arms, comfort us in our loneliness. Strengthen us in our weakness and give us courage to face the future unafraid. Draw those of us who remain in this life closer to one another and make us faithful to serve one another and give us to know that peace and joy, which is eternal life. 
So whether, you know, when we're in grief, whether it's death or whether it's loss, our survival, our recovery come from our response rather than simply a reaction. We respond to the comfort and the peace that God provides to the presence of his Holy Spirit within us. Now, while we can take great comfort in knowing that God is with us in the worst moments of our lives, I believe that there is an even deeper meaning to be found in this beatitude. Now, in the previous verse, in the first beatitude, Jesus had said that the poor in spirit are blessed when there is the recognition of the poverty of our soul as we are apart from him. And we come to that understanding and realize that I'm just destitute of soul. And that leads us then into the mourning of that poverty. We recognize the poverty, the loneliness, the lostness, the absolute isolation from God that is as a result of our sinfulness and and that causes us to mourn and to grieve. We grieve over the deplorable state of our soul that is no one else's fault than our own. It's not because of my parents' sin. It's not because of siblings or friends or anybody else. It's my sin. Mine alone that has caused this terrible separation from God that my sin has come between us. Sin always results in loss. There's never gain from sin. It always takes. It never gives. Sin separates. And it destroys. Imagine the mourning that you would feel if your doctor told you that you had an advanced stage of an inoperable and incurable cancer. You only had days or weeks to live. You would mourn for the losses to come. No more Christmases. No more family gatherings. No more of the things of life that that you enjoy. Now God has already told us about the terminal condition of our soul. In Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he speaks of the sin condition of every person. In the third chapter, in the 23rd verse, he says, every one of us, each and every one of us has sinned. None of us are free of it. Then in the sixth chapter, the 23rd verse, he writes that the wages or the end result of our sin is death. Now, as I explain it to the kids, I tell them that sin is a word that the Bible uses to talk about the bad things that we do. And that death death simply means separation. Just as when we die, our soul, our very life is separated from the physical body that we inhabit. And in spiritual death, we are separated from God. That's what spiritual death is all about. And if we don't recognize this, if we don't recognize the seriousness of our lost condition that is because of our own sin, we will continue in our sin and we will even justify it or excuse it and come to feel comfortable with it and let it get worse. Now, in the first chapter of Romans, Paul spends some time in several verses condemning what our culture calls the gay gay lifestyle. 
Well, there's a misnomer if there ever was one. But, you know, a lot of church people get really upset over this issue. Sometimes they don't act very Christian in addressing it. They'll wag their finger and condemn people over being homosexual and never separate the sin from the sinner. They'll hate the sin and the sinner. But all the while, they don't bother to read the remaining verses in that chapter. Paul goes on to include a list of sins that he says will bring God's death penalty. Among them are greed, envy, and strife, deceit, malice, gossiping, boy, the phone lines burn sometimes, and slander. He goes on to include those who are faithless, heartless, and unforgiving. Now, did you catch that? Paul is saying, in God's eyes, a homosexual is no worse off, faces no worse of a penalty than a gossip or a slanderer or someone who refuses to forgive. Greed, envy, and deceit will earn you the same penalty, the same guiltiness as a murderer or a sexual deviant. So what I'm saying to you is that sin's a horrible thing and it destroys our life and it really makes a mess of things. And when we get to that point where we recognize that absolute destitution and poverty of our soul, we recognize our need for Him, it should cause us to mourn very deeply. Just as we mourn the loss, a loved one that is torn from us, we would mourn the life that has been torn from us because of our sin. This would cause us such grief and sorrow that we really and truly mourn. Now, the book of Romans is not all about condemnation of sin and our guilt. It also gives us assurance of restoration and redemption. In chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he tells us that confession and belief bring salvation. He talks at length about the freedom from bondage that Christ gives to us because of The work that Christ did on the cross. He is able to defeat sin. He's able to defeat death. And He's able to set us free. Free from the bondage of the law. Free from the bondage of sin. And as Americans, we should be celebrating the freedom that we enjoy to live as we please. But the freedom of Christ sets us free so that we are truly able to know life. Now, I like the book of Romans. It's kind of like a visit to the doctor where he tells us straight up what the problem is and the terrible results that we can expect if the problem is not treated. But he also goes on to tell us that there is a cure and how we can get the cure. And it's free. You don't need insurance for it. It's a cure that's provided for us. Jesus, I do encourage you, if you haven't read Romans lately, just go home and read it. Talk about encouragement and really that sense of freedom in Christ. Read Romans. But Jesus is telling us in this second beatitude 
that with our mourning, with our recognition of our lostness, and with the mourning that results, there is comfort. But we must release our sin to Him. And it's through that release that we are able to make room for His comfort in our lives. It's the comfort of our knowing that our sin is forgiven, it's removed from us, and it's gone. The wall of separation is torn down, and it's destroyed. I can remember as a 13-year-old boy, the night that I came to this point of mourning and release. Now, I was basically a good kid. I mean, I didn't do the terrible things that kids can get into. Although I was, was part of that group that we went through a lot of Sunday school teachers. <laughs> and I keep, and when I'm dealing with kids here that just make me want to rethink my future. I also rethink, remember the past and realize that sometimes the kids that give us the most grief as adults usually turn out to be children's pastors and youth leaders and youth pastors and so forth. In fact, one of the blue-haired old ladies in our church told me soon after I announced my call to the ministry. She said, I knew that you were going to amount to something because you got the devil out of you when you were a kid. <laughs> so I was one of those. But basically, you know, I was a good kid. I tried to be compliant. and uh, That's another story. We just won't even go there. But that night at a revival service we had, I came to that recognition that I, I had a need in my life <laughs> that only God could... Could meet, and I can remember going down and kneeling at that altar and just bawling, because I knew that I was I was mourning my my sinfulness, but also celebrating the forgiveness that God brought to my life. And I remember very clearly lying in my bed that night, thinking about that evening's events, and and realizing how awesome it was that there's no sin of which I am guilty. That was cool. I can remember the comfort that I felt coming to that realization as a 13-year-old boy that I am forgiven, my slate is clean, and now I can start over again. Now many of you here today know exactly what I'm talking about. You've recognized that poverty of spirit that is in every one of us. You've recognized that destitution You've mourned over the the absolute lostness of your soul. And as you released your sin, and as you embraced the Savior, you found that comfort that Jesus promises to all who come to Him. Now Matt and Jenny Mooney grieved and mourned for their son Elliot. They only had him for 99 days. But they, as you saw in the video, they made the most of every one of them. But as they symbolized by the release of the 99 balloons, they did celebrate the days that they, in which they had him. But then they released him to God. Every one of those balloons representing the day of his life, as they released them, they were releasing Elliot to God. They worked through their grief and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they moved on with their lives. Now, they now have two kids, and they have founded a, a ministry to kids and their families, uh, kids with special needs. But what are you mourning 
today? Is it, is it the loss of a loved one or a friend? Maybe you've lost your livelihood or good health. Maybe you've gone through or are maybe going through bankruptcy or foreclosure or maybe facing the failure of a marriage. Or maybe you've recognized the poverty of your soul. You realize your need for the Savior. Maybe you're a Christian who needs to confess and repent of some sin in your life. But whatever it is, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're grieving over, whatever you're mourning, whatever is weighting you down and holding you back in just the sheer joy of life, whatever it is, I want to encourage you and invite you today to simply release it to God. Now, you can determine how you do this in your own way. Maybe you can go over to the party store and get a helium balloon and then take it out and talk with God about what's burdening you and release that balloon and let it symbolize that release. Maybe you can take the yellow piece of paper that's in your bulletin out here in the foyer and there's, a, there's two bulletin boards there that says Wailing Wall. Kind of patterned after the Western Wall in Jerusalem where the Jews go and pray and write their prayers on these little pieces of paper and they put it in that wall. Go out there and take that paper that has what it is that burns you and tack it up there, symbolizing your release to God. Maybe you can go to the person against whom you are holding a grudge and releasing that back to them. Or you can simply come, kneel here at this altar, or even a place of your own choosing. But simply saying, God, I'm burdened. I'm heavy laden. I'm poor in spirit. I am destitute of soul. And I need a Savior. I'm mourning over my loss, my grief. And I need your comfort. Now, it's our reaction that causes the grief and our mourning, but it is the release that brings healing and comfort. Our closing song this morning was written by Horatio Spafford in 1873. Spafford was a wealthy Chicago lawyer with a thriving legal practice. He had a beautiful home, four daughters, and a son. He was also a very devout Christian a faithful student of the scriptures. And his circle of friends included Dwight L. Moody and other well-known clergymen of the day. At the very height of his success, Horatio and his wife Anna suffered the loss of their youngest son. Shortly thereafter, on October 8th of 1871, the great Chicago fire destroyed almost every real estate investment that Spafford had. In 1873, Spafford scheduled a boat trip to Europe to give his wife and his daughters a much needed vacation from tragedy. And he also wanted to join Dwight L. Moody in an evangelistic campaign in, in, in England. So he sent his wife and daughters ahead on a ship because he had some last minute business that he had to tend to. But a few days later, 
he received a notice, a telegram, that his wife's ship, or his family's ship, had encountered a collision in which all four of his daughters had drowned. The telegram from his wife had but two words, saved alone. So with a heavy heart, Spafford got on a ship bound for England so that he could join his grieving Anna in England. And while on this trip, it is said that he had asked the captain of the ship to notify him when they reached the coordinates of his family disaster. And it was there that he looked out over the ship's rail into those dark waters that had claimed his daughters, that he penned those words in a poem. When peace like a river attendeth my way, When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. So today as we sing these words, will you determine that you will release your grief and sorrow to the Savior and know his comfort?